If you have your copy this morning of God's Word, I want to invite you to open up with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be reading the first seven verses of what I hope is a very familiar part of the Bible, the Ten Commandments. In our Awana program this spring, we uh, spent the last four months, week in and week out, teaching these Ten Commandments, what they uh, are and what they mean to our children. Uh, because unfortunately, in our day, there are many, even growing up in the Bible Belt, who don't know the Ten Commandments and don't know their relevance for the Christian life. So last week, leading into this famous passage of the Ten Commandments, we saw that Israel arrived at Mount Sinai. And at the base of Mount Sinai, they agree to enter into a covenant with the Lord Yahweh, a covenant being a binding agreement between two parties that will come with blessings or curses depending on whether or not Israel obeys or disobeys what God calls them to. We saw that as an unholy people, Israel cannot get too near to a holy God. So they must rely on Moses to be their go-between, their mediator between them and God. And in our text this morning, God begins to speak to Moses and to Israel from a cloud that has descended down on Mount Sinai. He begins to speak audibly to the people of God from above the mountain. And he gives them ten words, or what we call ten commandments. The first four dealing with our relationship with God and a call to love God with all our heart. The last six dealing with loving our neighbors as ourselves. This morning, I want to consider the first three of these commandments and what they teach us and how they apply to us. So let's read Exodus 20, verses 1 through 7 together. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have... No other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain." I want to look at these commandments in order this morning and see what God calls Israel and also His new covenant people, the church, to from these old covenant laws. The first thing that we see in the first commandment is that God calls His people to worship Him alone. To worship Him 
alone. Think about Israel. Israel has been in Egypt for 400 years, living amongst the people who have a God for everything. And they're soon going to be going into the promised land of Canaan, which is currently occupied by pagan nations who worship false gods. No matter where Israel goes, and no matter where we go today, we will be near a people who worship. Why? Because God has made all of us to be worshipers. Worship is more than coming to a building and singing some songs once a week. Oftentimes that's what we associate worship with, but it's, it's far more than that. Worship for humans is like breathing. You might not always realize that you're doing it, but you're always worshiping something. Worship is giving your allegiance, your devotion, your time, your trust, and your treasure to something. What you trust in is what you worship. What you put your hope in and rest in, that is what you are worshiping. What you're relying on to give you hope and peace and rest and joy, that is what you're worshiping. What you're daydreaming about, what you're longing for, that is what you are worshiping. And God has made all of us as worshipers so that we actually can't stop ourselves from worshiping. Many today will claim that they don't believe in God and that they don't follow religion and that they're therefore not worshipers. But don't be fooled. Even the most hardened atheist in the world is worshiping something. Likely themselves, their independence, their intelligence. Everyone is a worshiper of something. The problem in the Bible from Genesis 3 onward, when sin enters the world in the Garden of Eden, is a worship problem. It's not that humans stopped worshiping after They fell into sin, but instead that they exchanged the worship of the one true God for things that God has made. Take Adam and Eve, for example. They rebel against God in the Garden of Eden, not just because they're hungry for a tasty snack from the forbidden tree, but they rebel against God because they had begun to worship the idea of being in charge of their own lives, of living independently from God. They began to believe the lies that Satan had fed them. They began to daydream about a better version of life, a better future for themselves where they were in control, where they had no limitations placed on them, where they could do whatever they wanted and make their own rules. And to them, that was far better than God's plan for their life. It was worship in their hearts that led them to sin in their actions. Or think about the nations, the pagan nations in the ancient world, the contemporaries of the ancient Israelites. What were they concerned about? Honestly, they were concerned with the same things we are concerned about today. Surviving, food, water, procreation, things of this nature. They needed children so that they would have someone to work the ground and pass on their family name. They needed food and water in order to survive. They needed rain to keep their livestock alive and their crops growing so that they could continue to live. 
They were worried about the next week and the next month and the next season constantly. They were trying to survive. Because famine and pestilence were real threats that would demolish communities and nations in that day. So when these pagan people, when even the Israelites, when they saw that over in that geographic area, the rain is coming. They have plenty of crops that are growing because the rain is falling. They would see that and they would think to themselves... You know, they're worshiping this God they believe in. They're making sacrifices to this God, and it appears they've got some sort of a bargain worked out, some sort of a deal. They offer sacrifices to Him. He gives them the rain. We would like to survive and not starve to death. We would like to experience prosperity. Maybe we need to get in on some of what they're doing over there. Maybe we need to go and worship the God that they're worshiping and make sacrifices and idols Like they are because things seem to be going well for them. What happened is they would fall in line with whichever gods, supposed gods, were giving them what they were really living for, what they were really worshiping, which was safety and security and comfort and survival and maybe even a little joy along the way. Ancient peoples would give their allegiance to any deity who would give them what they were really after, what they were really worshiping. So their worship of false gods was rooted in loving things that God had made, things that God could give them more than they loved God. God was just a vending machine. God was just like Santa Claus. He was a cosmic genie in the sky. He delivered the goods and they tried to make deals and bargains, whether it was the God of Israel or any God. Their ultimate allegiance, their ultimate devotion, their ultimate desire and love was not for the true God, but instead was for what he had made, what he could give them to help them live their version of the good life. Long before they began to worship other gods in visual, tangible ways, people were worshiping gods that were in their hearts. God replacements, rivals of God for their supreme devotion. But God didn't make the world and humanity to love and worship what he made more than him. God made the world, God made us to love and desire and worship and magnify and devote our lives to Him alone because He alone is worthy of praise. He alone is unchangeable. He alone can keep the promises that He has made to His people. All other gods will over-promise and under-deliver You think that they will satisfy you and then you get what you're longing for and it's never enough because God didn't make us to be satisfied in His stuff. He made us to be satisfied in Him. All other gods will change. All other gods will leave you empty and hopeless. All other gods are not really gods 
at all. So the Lord Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, begins His ten words, His ten commandments by telling Israel to worship Him alone, to trust in Him alone, to be devoted supremely to Him alone. God demands an exclusivity of worship because He is the only God. And worshiping what he has made, worshiping his gifts instead of worshiping the giver, that is the definition of idolatry. And our God is a jealous God who shares our devotion with none. You might think to yourself, well, I've never made a golden calf. I've never worshiped Baal, the god of thunder, to get the rain to fall so my crops would Come, I've never done that exactly like that. How does this apply to us today? I fear today that the reason that so many in the buckle of the Bible belt in America do not love God and are not blown away by His grace in a fresh and new way over and over is because we have far too high a view of ourselves. We think... I don't do this, this, and this behavior, and therefore I'm pretty good. And if I'm pretty good, then God's grace isn't that amazing. But in order for God's grace to truly blow our minds again and again and again, we have to recognize that our hearts, not just our actions, are far from God. That we are constantly living in a perpetual state of making idols and giving our allegiance and devotion to things other than God. And that is why grace is sweet. That is why forgiveness is such a big deal. That is why the gospel should blow our minds again and again and should lead us to live lives overflowing with worship instead of being bored with God. Friends, we have idols and gods in our lives. You might not be tempted to worship the gods of other religions. You might not be tempted to craft an image of a false god like many around the world do today. But every one of us have rival gods. And if you say that you don't, then you are lying or you are a fool. We all have rival gods. In fact, the prophet Ezekiel And a part of the Bible, a lot of times we honestly don't read, begins to speak about how the leaders in Israel, the shepherds who were supposed to be guiding Israel, they had idols on their hearts. They had God replacements that you might not be able to see with your eyes, but that is what they were living for. That was their true God. And having this category for idols on our, of our hearts, it will help us to understand why God's grace through Jesus is so sweet and how the Christian life of sanctification is a constant, ongoing journey. We all have idols on our hearts, even if you're a believer. One famous theologian has even went so far as to say that the human heart is an idol-making factory. Your idols are what you trust in, what you depend on, what you praise, what you think that you can't live without, what you think you must have in order to get through this life. It might be living for man's approval, because if other people like me, then I'll be satisfied. Then I'll have what I'm after. It might be power. It might be having control. 
I've got to control my life, my schedule, my kids, my workplace. And if I can't be in control, then I can't cope because control is what truly satisfies me. It might be comfort and security. So the greatest threat in your life is any sort of risk. It might be pleasure. If it feels good, go after it. There are all sorts of idols on our hearts that motivate why we do what we do. Our idols are the things that we think we must have to live. And then when they are taken away from us, we lash out and get angry with God and others. Or we can't cope and we spiral out of control with anger and sadness. And the tricky thing about idols of the heart is that they are not all bad things. There are lots of things that are good things in and of themselves that we want... But whenever we begin to want them too bad, whenever we begin to say, I can't live without this, whenever we begin to put our hope and our joy and our peace and our rest in these things instead of in God, then we are worshiping something else. An idol is anything we treasure more than God and are more devoted to than God. That's why we call them God replacements or rival gods. Any any manifestation of sin in your life, any manifestation of sin is the result of some sort of idolatry that's happening in your heart. But we usually don't think about it that way. We usually only see the behaviors or the words, and then we say, I just need to try harder to stop doing this. I know this is wrong, I just need to stop doing this by my own willpower. But a lot of times when we do that, we're just treating the symptoms. We're not treating what's causing the symptoms, something going on in our heart. Why don't you share your faith with unbelievers in your life? Maybe it's because if you do, they might not like you. They might not like your message. It might change the way that your relationship with them goes. And really what you love in that moment more than God and obedience to Him is man's approval. Man's approval is what you're worshiping in that moment instead of worshiping God by sharing your faith. Why do we so often lash out at people when our detailed plans get derailed? We have a plan, we have a schedule, we've got a routine, we've got something that needs to happen this way, and then something happens, an interruption, a circumstance changes, whatever it might be. And we can't be in control, so now we can't cope. Why? Because we believe that being in control will truly satisfy us. And if our life gets out of control and our plans don't come to pass, then we can't cope and we will punish whoever it is that made that happen and changed our plans in our life. It's idolatry. We can call it OCD tendencies. It's idolatry. That's at the root. That's what the Bible would say about this. Why do we work like mad to make money? Because money will help us to feed our idols of comfort and security and significance. You can get all the money in the world. And then you die and you have nothing to show for it. Why can't we turn the other cheek when someone unfairly insults us? Because we love our reputation and we love being respected by others more than we love God. And we will punish anyone who would dare to attack our idol of respect and reputation. Why do we chafe against authority figures in our lives? 
because we think that the good life that will truly satisfy us is one where, where we are free and independent and we make our own rules and we, beat, we live our lives to the beat of our own drum and that authority figures get in the way of that and they get in the way of us feeding our idols so we, we push back on any authority figure in our life. I could go on and on down the list, but I hope you see my point. Any manifestation of sin in our life, in action, in word, or in attitude, is ultimately flowing from a worship problem and an idolatry problem in our heart. It's rooted in a rival God that is competing with your allegiance to the one true God. You can trace any sinful behavior back to its root and pull back its layers and ask these why questions. Why do I do this? Why do I care about this? Why do I respond to this situation in this way? And eventually you will find the root idol that's going on in your lives. Idols are the things in our lives that keep us from obeying God and His call on us. Idols are the things that make us angry at God. Idols are the things that lead us and our emotions to be out of control constantly. When you don't think that God is enough for you, When you think that God's promises in the Bible are not enough, it's because you're believing the promises that idols are making to you. Idols that will always overpromise and underdeliver. They will never satisfy because only God can. They are not worth your ultimate allegiance and devotion because only God is. Other gods is an issue that Israel had that the Egyptians had, that the Canaanites had, that the Babylonians had, that the Assyrians had, that the Romans have, and that we have. It has always been this way. No one is immune. We have a worship problem. And that is why God begins His list of ten words with a call to total allegiance to Him. That's the first commandment. God shows us that He calls His people to worship Him alone. But He says more than that. He also says, and we see in our text, that God calls His people to represent Him in the right way. To represent Him in the right way. What would happen in the ancient world, and still today is that worshipers would craft some sort of an image that they could see with their eyes and touch with their hands. And this image was supposed to represent their divine being that they worshipped. These images would somehow symbolize the divine God that they we're worshiping, and the most famous incident in the Bible of this is coming in Exodus, Exodus 32, where Israel is at the base of Mount Sinai, and Moses has been up there getting God's laws for too long, so they decide they will mold a golden calf. And they do this, actually, to show God's power, because a calf represents, God, it represents strength and vitality. So Israel's trying to display some of God's attributes through this image of a golden calf. But the problem with this is that God is fundamentally different from all the things that He has made, and there is nothing that He has made that can fully encompass and represent who He is. God is powerful, but He's also gracious. And a golden calf can't communicate both of those attributes at the same time. 
God is loving, but He's also just. God is unchangeable, but He's also sovereign. And there is no image that we could make that could fully represent who God is. And therefore, any images we make of God will misrepresent Him and therefore defame the true character and glory that is His. In addition, God's presence, God's power cannot be contained in an image and cannot be controlled by those who try to use good craftsmanship to construct an idol. God can be bound by no one. God can be used by no one. And this is what ancient peoples and people still today would try to do in making an idol. They would try to control God and control where He goes and what He does by imagining that they can somehow contain Him for their good, to serve them and their idols. God not only wants to be worshipped exclusively, alone, as the only God, He also expects that His people will worship Him in the right way, not misrepresenting Him by comparing Him to things that He has made. What's interesting, if you think about the Old Testament and the story of the Bible is that Israel is commanded here to make no graven images of God. And part of the reason why is because God has already given an imprint of His image to the world. Where? Us. Genesis 1. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, male and female. He created them in His image. God has made us to reflect Him through who we are and through what we do. Now this obviously means much more than our physical form represents God because God the Father is a spirit. But mankind was made to image and reflect God's character to the world through what we do and through who we are. But in a fallen world where our sin nature has come, our sin nature has marred the image of God so that we are an imperfect representation to the world of who God is. And with that sin nature, we are prone to making graven images that misrepresent and belittle and disrespect our God. It's actually not until God takes on flesh Himself in the person of Jesus Christ that a true, perfect image of God could be seen to watching eyes. So God expects His people to worship Him in the right way and to not make graven images of Him that misrepresent Him in some way. They do not need to worship Him in ways that they want, but according to His Word. What does that mean for us today? I think there's a lot of applications. It means we need to be very careful that the Bible and not the culture, define for us who God is. It means that we need to worry more with who God is according to the Bible, with His character and His attributes and His promises, than with what He visibly looks like. It means that I think we would be better served to skip movies or images that depict God in a disrespectful or sacrilegious way. 
I think it means that we should worry less about Jesus' physical appearance because no one knows truly what he looks like and more with who he was, his identity, his finished work, his teaching and his promises. We need to remember that God throughout the Bible, transforms His people not through seeing with their eyes, but by hearing the Word of God that changes us from the inside out. We need His Word, not a painting of Him. I think it also means we need to seriously consider how God commands us to worship Him and to think of Him. He's God. He made us. He calls the shots. And that means that if He's God and He's told us how to worship Him and how not to worship Him in both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that means that He and not our impulses and not our creativity should dictate how He is represented and how He is worshipped in our lives when we gather corporately, but also in our lives individually. We need to worship God according to what God has told us and not according to our impulses and creativity. Because if our impulses and creativity are not found in the Word of God, then we should push pause and remember that God calls us to worship Him in the right way, and the right way is His way. God calls us. He calls His people to worship Him alone and to represent Him the right way. But there's one more thing we see in this third commandment. We see that God calls His people to magnify or to make much of and not belittle Him with their words. Israel's told, don't take the name of the Lord Yahweh in vain. Many of us have been told our whole lives and maybe even taught our kids that what that means for you is don't say, oh my God, or any other substitute words. Don't say GD. You know what that stands for. But the idea here is about more than just avoiding a few buzz phrases. God is concerned that we not use our words in ways that belittle Him and belittle His glory. In the same way that an image of God made in a graven image cannot fully encompass who He is and cannot represent Him rightly, words that we speak that shade the brightness of His glory by belittling Him or misrepresenting Him or minimizing His greatness as He's revealed Himself, those kinds of words are off limits. What that means is what you say about God matters to God, even if you never say a cuss word. What you say about God, how you communicate about God, matters to God. He even says, the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. If you speak about God's character or His grace or His promises or His justice or His sovereignty over our world, in a way that communicates that He is not worthy of praise, then you've broken this commandment. If you speak about His grace in a way that the Bible doesn't define grace, then you've broken this commandment. That happens a lot today. 
when you speak about God in a way that communicates that you are bored with Him, with His story, with His commands, with His lordship over your life, with His work. When you speak about Him in a way that communicates, oh, I'm passionate about this and this and this and this in my life, but God, yeah, I get a little bit of Him every once in a while. Oh, man. When that happens, we're breaking the third commandment. We're belittling who He is. When we perk up and get excited and spend all of our time and talent and treasure on lesser earthly things with no eternal significance, but we're bored with God. The way that we talk, oh, grieves the heart of a jealous God who calls us to love Him supremely. If you use your tongue to exalt things that God has made to the neglect of exalting the Creator and the Giver of all, then you're breaking this command. If you speak about God or you sing songs about God that do not faithfully represent who He is as He's revealed Himself to us in Scripture, then we're breaking this command. This is, in fact, I believe, one of the reasons why the Bible says that those who feel called to teach the Scriptures should cautiously approach that call. Because God takes seriously misrepresenting Him with our words. And He will hold us accountable for every careless, false, apathetic word spoken about Him. Did you hear that? That will cause you to pause. That will build humility and reverence. God will hold us accountable for every careless, false, apathetic word spoken about Him. God is not interested in how creative we are. He's not interested in us creating new and novel ways to speak about Him. In fact, usually... When you start speaking about God in new and novel ways, you're probably a heretic. Because God has faithfully communicated to us long ago who He is. And in general, if you're doing something that no one has ever done before, while the world today says newer is better, the Bible says newer is probably dangerous. God wants us to use our tongues to faithfully represent Him, and to give Him the honor that is due Him. Our words and our lives should magnify and exalt His greatness, not minimize and belittle who He is. So, in summary, these first three commandments deal with our lives, with our worship. They deal with worshiping God alone and with representing and magnifying Him with our worship and our words. And I'm about to tell you something that I hope you already know if you're honest. You and I cannot keep the Ten Commandments. We can't do it. We can memorize them. We can know what they mean. We can talk about them, we can sing about them, we can preach about them, but you can't obey them. You can't do it perfectly. You can't meet God's standard on your own. You can't. 
You can't love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's above your pay grade. It's impossible with a sin nature. But if you wholeheartedly disagree with what I just said, and you said, well, I've never murdered anybody, I've never committed adultery, I've never done this and that, and I've never made a graven image, and I'm ne- wake up! It's not just about what you do, it's about why you do it. We're going to get to the Sermon on the Mount in a couple of weeks. What Jesus says, you've heard it said this, but I say unto you this. Jesus is going to expose how all these commandments don't just look at our actions that are externally and visibly seen, but God cares about our hearts and our motivations and we can break these commands. If you know yourself and you're honest, you know you can't do this. If you hear this about rival gods and misrepresenting God and belittling God and you think, oh, I hope so-and-so is listening to this and you don't feel an ounce of conviction, then there might be something dangerous going on in your heart. We've got to realize we can't do this on our own. And until we realize that, then Jesus won't mean anything to you. But the good news of the gospel, the reason we gather, the reason we sing, the reason we praise, the reason we preach, the reason we exist as believers is because one has come who has perfectly loved and worshipped God in a way that we never could. One has come who never succumbed to the tantalizing temptation of idolatry. One has come who represented God perfectly as the true image of God in the flesh. One has come who always used his tongue to praise and reverence the true Lord who is almighty. And that perfect one, Jesus Christ, has earned the blessing of God, but willingly took upon himself the curse of God's wrath to pay the penalty for our law breaking and for our lack of perfect exclusive worship given to God and the only hope that you have the only hope that I have to not face God's judgment that we have earned that we deserve the only way to tap into and be given the power to faithfully, albeit imperfectly, obey these commandments. The only hope is Jesus Christ. Not our efforts, not our will, not our good works. Only faith in Jesus, only reliance on Jesus, only trust in Jesus, only rest in Jesus. That alone can do it. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Him, you don't stand a chance to obey these commandments on your own. And He beckons you not to try harder, but to repent of your sins and to believe in His perfect life and His death and resurrection for you. He beckons you to surrender your life to Him and make Him your King. He will forgive you. He will empower you, but only on the other side of repentance and faith and surrender. Only when you lay down your independence and surrender your will and your plans and fall in line with Him. And if you're here this morning and you do know Him in a saving way, but this is getting all up in your business and your toes are bruised and you recognize that there are things in your life that you you need to be more faithful in, know this, 
There is power in the blood of Jesus. There is power in the indwelling Holy Spirit, not only to save you and pay your penalty, but also to change you. There is power in the blood of Jesus, not only to forgive you, but to transform you. So this morning, if you find yourself misrepresenting God with your words or your thoughts, if you find yourself chock full of God replacements that are competing with God for your allegiance and your devotion and your worship, then join me not in trying harder, but in going to the foot of the cross in repentance. Repent this morning of your divided worship. Repent this morning of believing the lies of the world and the lies of these idols that overpromise and underdeliver. Repent of loving and trusting those idols more than God. And as you repent, remember that God's grace is greater than your sin. As you repent, ask God to help you to be intentional and disciplined and serious about uprooting those idols and replacing them with godliness. As you repent, ask God for transforming spirit-empowered grace to change and be more like Jesus. And know as you repent and ask for those things that God will answer that prayer through the power of the Holy Spirit. He is able because He won the victory. He is able because Jesus kept the law. He is able because He's defeated sin and death. He is able because He's defeated Satan's power. He is able because He is God. He is able and we are not. So we must trust in and lean on and rest in Him and not ourselves and not our works and not our efforts. He is the victor. He is the law keeper. He is the faithful one. He is the Savior. He is better than all of our idols and He can forgive and transform you. I pray this morning that you'll go to the foot of the cross and do business with Him, repenting and praying that God will save and sanctify, will stir your affections for Him, and will make you holy like His Son, Jesus. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. Lord Jesus, I acknowledge this morning, Lord, I have idols on my heart. I have things that I think will satisfy more than you that I'm constantly battling. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm the wretch in the song. I, I recognize that. The more that I come to know you and your word and see your holiness, the more I recognize how undeserving I am of your grace. And yet, Lord, recognizing those things makes me more and more thankful for your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness and your empowerment. God, I pray that you will help me to be more like Jesus and to lay aside these idols. I pray, God, that you will be at work in my life and in all of our lives. Lord, not just to be religious, duty-bound, law-keeping citizens, but instead, Lord, to have hearts that love and desire you supremely. God, stir our affections. God, wake up. Wake us up. Open our eyes. Soften our hearts. Give us the passion and fervency for you that we once had. 
help us. Help us to be who you call us to be and help us to do it by resting in your Son, not by just trying real hard. God, you're good and you're gracious. Forgive us and as we sing, we praise that you will get the glory. In Christ's name I pray, amen.